hppodcraft.com. The time traveller, for so it will be convenient to speak of him, was expounding a recondite matter to us. His grey eyes shone and twinkled, and his usually pale face was flushed and animated. The fire burned brightly, and the soft radiance of the incandescent lights in the lilies of silver caught the bubbles that flashed and passed in our glasses. Our chairs, being his patents, embraced and caressed us rather than submitted to be sat upon, and there was that luxurious after-dinner atmosphere when thought runs gracefully free of the trammels of precision. And he put it to us in this way, marking the points with a lean forefinger, as we sat and lazily admired his earnestness over this new paradox, as we thought it, and his fecundity. "'You must follow me carefully. I shall have to controvert one or two ideas that are almost universally accepted.' The geometry, for instance, they taught you at school, is founded on a misconception. "'Is not that rather a large thing to expect us to begin upon?' said Philby, an argumentative person with red hair. "'I do not mean to ask you to accept anything without reasonable ground for it. You will soon admit as much as I need from you.' Piper, I need you to admit that this story kicks ass. I will. I do admit it. I I admit it freely. I'm so excited to be reading this book. Flipping these pages makes me feel like a kid again. So full of adventure. That was the opening of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. As you know, H.P. Lovecraft was a fan of H.G. Wells, and I think because they both just used their first two initials. I think that's why Lovecraft was really into it. Well, it's enough of a similarity that people often think this show is about H.G. Wells. Like some folks, I'll say, <laughs> I do an H.G. Lovecraft podcast, and they'll say, oh, I love War of the Worlds. Yeah. Tim Robbins was great in that, mm. which is not true, actually. Nobody's ever said Tim Robbins was great. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> I just did a drive-by on Tim Robbins for no reason. Speaking well, of... You didn't even ask for that. What there was no mean? reason. No. Take that, Robbins. Well, speaking of the name Tim, they say, if you add an E to that, you know what you got time yeah that's the old saying (laughs) i don't know man i was just trying to segue and that was a great segue for june is for chrononauts it is for chrononauts yay as well as the end of may but june is all time machine all the time yes it's all time machine except for the one alternate timeline where you insist we cover 50 shades of gray all month that's that's the only place it's not all time machine. I keep going back and trying to prevent that one, but I get foiled every time. Wait, you've been foiled? Because I've I've never actually read it, so I would assume that you were successful and somehow diverted me from reading. Well, no, it's just one timeline where you're at a cafe and you turn right instead of left. You see that dog-eared copy of Fifty Shades of Grey, and you think, oh, this will be a laugh. Oh. And then you know, two hours later, you're a graybeard. Oh my god, I didn't even know that was. That was possible. I don't know if Greybeard is what you call fans of that book. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) It's great. I'm a total Greybeard, dude. Wait, who was that amazing reader? He made me explode with joy. (laughs) Whoa. That was Greg Johnson returning to once again to pass the time. Um, Oh, he's passing it. You know, I thought I recognized him. He is also in that awesome audio adventure comedy, Quiet and Bold. Yes. The Lovecraftian radio comedy that we've all been hoping for since childhood. Can't forget wishing there'd be Quiet and Bold someday. Check it out at quietandbold.com and your dreams will come true. You know what they say, there's no I in teamwork, but there is an I in Greg. And it won't stop staring at me. I don't know. I don't, none of that made sense. <laughs> I don't know how to deal with that, but it's beautiful. Yeah, our story thanks. starts off with our time traveler, known only as 
the time traveler, talking with some other Victorian gentlemen about the fourth dimension, which is time. Yes. We've got Philby, the argumentative redhead guy, the psychologist, the provincial mayor, the medical man, and the very young man, which all sound like a collection of the worst superheroes ever. <laughs> they may be the worst superheroes, Chris, but they're the only superheroes we have right now. <laughs> argumentative redhead, we need your help. No, you don't. <laughs> I also want to point out that I'm going to crib from the opening paragraph of this book for my sequel to The Human Chair, which I'm uh-huh. calling The Human Chairs. It's this line. Our chairs, being his patents, embraced and caressed us rather than submitted to be sat upon. So, huh? Whoa. Oh, yeah. I think that the time traveler is also running a side business where he lets a bunch of kinkos hang out inside those chairs <laughs> rubbing up on his buddies. <laughs> Nobody's rubbing me. Shut up, argumentative redhead. <laughs> I won't shut up. Oh, my gosh. And we, all, and we also have Mr. Hillier, who is the narrator. He's the one who's laying this down to us. The time traveler is saying that a thing that has no duration doesn't exist. A cube that doesn't take up time never was a thing. So time is crucial. It is one of the dimensions of an object. You have to have it if it is a real thing. People get tripped up on it because we only move in one direction within this dimension. He explains it simply enough, though. You know, if something has to exist, like you say... It has to have this feature the way that you can't say something exists unless it has some sort of mass, some height and length. Mm-hmm. And duration is just a part of that. It has to exist in time, uh, mm-hmm. which makes time that fourth dimension. We already measure it. Yeah. But he's saying that if we just realize that it's yet another dimension, we should be able to travel across it. But the listeners are skeptical of this because thus far, we've only been able to move in one direction. We haven't been able right. to go any other direction. The time traveler also points out that they are there are limits to our movement in 3D space. We can go left and right, forward and backwards, but up and down, we're sort of slaves to gravity. So going down is the natural motion of gravity. Up is possible with balloons and such, but the natural inclination is down. As in times, natural inclination is to move forward. Exactly. The medical man says that you can move against gravity. It's possible, and we do it daily. But with time, only the moment, the now is what we can perceive. But the balloons are all they have at the time. They didn't have aircraft or anything like that. But he's, sa- he, he's just saying it's not natural for us to move up and down. But the time traveler's saying through technology, we do it. And he's right. Yeah. That force that impels us to move forward in time is maybe light gravity. It's easier to go forward than back. But if you had the right technology, you could do it maybe. And he talks about how even take the balloons out of the equation, you can still jump up and down yeah. to fight against gravity. Yeah, and that's a little bit of traveling up. And how daydreaming is actually a similar thing. I can think back to a moment from the past, and just for a brief second, I'm there again. But then the present catches up, and you're knocked out of it. And it's a little like jumping up and down in 3D space. So it's kind of a cool idea. He says we're moving through time at a steady velocity, which, of course, doesn't factor in relativity, because, Mm. as you know, Chad, the rate of time (laughs) slows with our velocity. So in a sense... He's right about that. He is right. I wrote a movie that features time dilation and has been on the fast track for production for over three years. (laughs) So, you know, the Hollywood system has a way of stretching time as well. But the final version of The Time Machine was published in 1895. And there was, you know, relativity, quantum mechanics. These concepts hadn't been introduced yet. Wells was into science. He knew what he was talking about based on what was out there. So he had some knowledge of mechanics, thermodynamics, evolution. That stuff pops up all over the place in this book. So it's science-based, but he didn't have relativity yet to refer to. They say time travel is just not possible. But the time traveler says that he had an idea of how it could be. And he doesn't explain exactly how, which is a good choice. Don't get into the mud with it because anything you come up with will be disproven. Just say, dance around it. 
-hmm. But he says he's testing out his theory and he's got proof. And the men get a little excited and start talking about all the cool things they could check out in the past. What They say, uh, one might travel back and verify the accepted account of the Battle of Hastings. One might get one's Greek from the very lips of Homer and Plato. Mm-hmm. And then the young man thinks of going into the future and knowing how business stocks and how to invest and in, in all those things are going to are going to turn out. Bet on sports teams. That's just the way that Biff got rich, right? Exactly. What would you do if you had a time machine? If this was somebody just presenting it to you? I think the fun of this book is wondering about all those things. Yeah. I mean, I'm way more curious. I have to agree with H.G. Wells about the future. I mean, there's a few things in the past that I would just like to see. Yeah. Because I'm sure that my idea of it is tainted by films. And of the course. reality of, of the past, I'm sure, was much more horrible. And like just the smell alone of London 200 years ago must have been unbelievably terrible. Oh, right. It's funny. I get sick when I move in space. So I've lived, lived in California a long time. Even when I go home to visit Illinois, I'm not used to some of the pathogens or whatever. You know, so I like about half of the time I go home, I get a little ill. Yeah. Imagine if you moved in space and time. I mean, who knows what was floating around at that time that we're just oh, we've God. outgrown our uh, our immunity to that. You, I think you just get sick right away, no matter where. Yeah. You who knows? I would want to see a little of the past. I think I would probably just pick something random like. Like go to England in 1966 where an 18 year old Olivia Newton John is performing in nightclubs and homesick for Australia <laughs> and needs a little comfort from somebody. Something random like that. I would just kind of let the machine choose. Oh, but yeah, I boy. would be I would be definitely interested in the future. Although when I was little and I played guns with the neighborhood kids, yeah, one of our scenarios we were really into was going back to the Revolutionary War with Uzis. That's a common one. Well, there was that movie, uh, The Final Countdown, where an aircraft carrier goes back to World War II. It's got Kurt Douglas in it. Do you remember mm-hmm. that movie? Yeah, vaguely. The planes that they had in World War II, the Japanese come in and then they've got their freaking jet fighters and they just totally <laughs> rock them. They're like, why? We could stop the war. And then they go in the whole, well, if we mess up with time, if we change things around, then we can cause problems. We right. might even, you know, the whole paradox issue. And so I remember it being a really cool movie when I was a teenager. I don't mm. know how it holds up. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Everybody says that they would, the first thing they say is, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and I'd kill Hitler. Oh, pff, that is. That's amateur mistake number one. Well, I know. Messing with your past, of course, will have repercussions on the present. You might even wipe out your own existence. Any variation in our timelines would make us not exist anymore. I mean, we're our parents would have had to have sex at the exact same time. The exact mm-hmm. same sperm would have to get in that exact same egg. If they had sex 10 minutes later than when they did originally, you would not be you. Any messing around with time is going to have... Uh, bad consequences. That's what that's what popular entertainment uh, teaches us. Yes, that's right. But the future, however, I think would be really interesting to go into the future and then come back with that knowledge. But you would be affecting the past, which the present is to the future right now. But I don't care about that because I'm, it's my <laughs> present, you know. And of course, once I go in the future and I come back and I start messing with things, that future that I did see before won't be anymore. It'll be a different future. Unless there's different time streams, you know, where you know, things are happening differently in each one of those things, right? Yeah. That future that you visited still exists. It just exists in a different timeline where you didn't go and influence it. Yeah. If that's how you see time travel, I mean, as for me, once I go in the future and then I come back, I've created a new timeline and that old timeline is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Well, that's the always the thing that happens when you watch the Terminator back to the future. Any of these, eventually you get in this discussion and it starts making your brain hurt. And I think that's actually what's happening to the people in the room. Right. They keep saying, this is a paradox. This yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. If you do this, it's going to blow everything up. Basically, this isn't how, how is this possible? <laughs> 
<laughs> so the narrator, he finally gets them to shut up by saying, okay, look, I'm going to show you, okay? And the time traveler leaves the room and he comes back with a, a, a little thing. It says, the thing the time traveler held in his hands was a glittering metallic framework, scarcely larger than a small clock and very delicately made. There was ivory in it and some transparent crystalline substance. So it's this tiny little miniature time machine. Yeah. And everyone gathers around and take a look at this. And he sets it up on the table and he says it's a miniature prototype. As in, it works. The time traveler said, you know, I'm tired of calling him the time traveler. Can we just call him Herb? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. Although I could see, I, I could see in a movie somebody going, who are you? And he pulls one of those, uh, my name is Tim. Tim E. Traveler. <laughs> yes, it's an odd name. It's Mexican. <laughs> But it's my name. <laughs> but no, Herb is good. I like I like Herb. That's comforting. Herb, let's, let's Herb yeah. If you recall, time after time, it's actually H.G. Wells made a time machine. He actually made a functioning All time right. machine and goes into the future. He's also chasing Jack the Ripper, who has escaped with his time machine into the future. So Herbert is what the H stands for. Uh, yeah, and Herbert, Herbert George Wells, yes. So he says about the machine that it looks singularly askew and that there is an odd twinkling appearance about this bar as though it were in some way unreal. Also, here is one little white lever and here is another. So it's got these two little levers. You push one forward and you go forward in time. You push the other forward and you go back in time. I'm guessing that they're, that they're set up because you can't, I would think, what happens if you push them both forward? Is that, that would be crazy. So there oh, must, yeah, if one goes forward, the other goes back. I don't know. Don't even talk about that. <laughs> but it took him two years to build. And he describes it as having a saddle uh, where the time traveler sits, which I can't help but think of the 1960 film, which is actually a pretty faithful adaptation of the story, where it's just a chair sitting on a platform. And I actually got to see the, the prop from... Oh, cool. The, the movie and stuff. Yeah, it was. This guy has a collection in, in Los Angeles, uh, Bob uh, Bob Burns. He has this great collection. When I first moved out to LA in 94, my friend knew him. And so I got to go in and see all of his stuff. And he had a he had one of the original props from the time machine. And then he had it restored as well. But anyway, that's just a chair. <laughs> this sounds more like a, I don't know, like a speeder bike or something. Yeah, it does. Which I think is kind of cool. He has the psychologist push the little lever with his finger and then when he does, the candle on the table flickers and then goes out. Then the model becomes ghost-like and then just totally disappears. And they just all stand there agape. It really isn't much proof that time travel happened. No, not at all. He just made this little origami model disappear. But aside from that, this decision, once he, there's nobody in it. So once that yeah. model is going, is it just going to travel through time forever? I guess. It seems that he could, and I'm no scientist, but could he have rigged some clockwork device that would maybe push the lever, level, stop it? then pull it yeah. back for the same duration of time so that maybe he would have some evidence of the thing working. Well, I don't think that he could. I think that's too complicated for somebody that invented a time machine. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course he could. The best solution would probably just have been to put an ant scientist in there. There you go. <laughs> ant mad scientist could have controlled the little tiny time machine. And oh, yeah, it's Reported back. The medical man basically says, how do you know this thing went through time just like you did? And the time traveler says, look, I've got a full scale one and I'm ready to test it in a couple of days. Basically, he avoids his question. Yeah. I'm going to do it regardless and I'm not sure I haven't made the decision yet whether I'm going to go to the past or to the future. They discuss why they can't see the machine. The little one, right? Because yeah. it disappeared, it traveled into the future and they're saying but we are in the future now. Why can't we see it on the table? If it traveled into the past, why wasn't it on the table when we came in here? And the psychologist suggests that if it moves through say a minute within a, a second of its time that it would only have one sixtieth the impression. So it, it would be like watching a, a movie, but one frame would only last one sixtieth of a second. 
pretty much be in, invisible. And if you're going faster than that, then you, would, you wouldn't be able to see it. Herb asks, you know, hey, what do you guys think of this whole thing? Do you think it sounds plausible? And they're all like, well, yeah, it's plausible for sure. <laughs> but I'm sure tomorrow we're going to realize how stupid this whole thing is. But for now, yeah, okay. He then asks, do you guys want to see the full-scale model that I've been building? And so they all go to his lab, they see the machine, and the narrator describes it a bit more. He says, uh, parts of it were of nickel, parts of ivory, parts had certainly been filed or sawed out of crystal rock. The thing was generally complete, but the twisted crystalline bars lay unfinished upon the bench beside some sheets of drawings. And I took one up for a better look at it. Quartz, it seemed to be. Mm. So it's got like all these different types of, it's not metal. It's got quartz, it's got ivory, which is, seems like a strange choice. He says, I caught Philby's eye over the shoulder of the medical man and he winked at me solemnly. <laughs> so what the heck is solemn winking? What does that look like? Wouldn't it just seem like he had something in his eye? Well, that's Philby, the argumentative redhead, right? So I think what <laughs> happened was the narrator wrote this story down and in the story it said, Philby struggled with something in his eye. And then when he showed the manuscript to Philby, he said, no, I was winking. <laughs> The narrator said, winking, you were definitely not in good humor when you did that. I was watching you, and you said, that's because it was a solemn wink. Don't you know anything? Next thing you'll say, my hair isn't red. Well, it is. It's one of the only two things anybody knows about me. <laughs> that ends chapter one. Chapter two. Now, they're all dubious about this is true, right? Yeah. Herb has a reputation for playing practical jokes on people. Yeah, he's, right? yeah exactly. He, he's kind of like the George Clooney of the Victorian England <laughs> in that he liked to play practical <laughs> jokes. So our, our narrator goes over to Herb's place the following week for a dinner party. Uh, and the medical man is going to be there. And Herb, when he gets there, the medical man's there already. But Herb left a note saying to start dinner without him if he's not there by seven, which is, of course, weird mm. to have a dinner party and not show up for your own dinner party. Some other guys are there, the psychologist from before, but some new guys, Blank, the editor, a certain journalist, and a guy with a beard. That guy's definitely a gray beard. <laughs> they have dinner and they discuss why he's late for his own dinner party. And the psychologist brings up the whole time travel trick from last week, which that's what he thinks it is when he made the thing disappear. He's like, I've seen people make things disappear all the time. It was a trick and he's trying to mess with us. But finally, the time traveler, Herb, he shows up and he looks like he's a mess. It says his coat was dusty and dirty and smeared with green down the sleeves, his hair disordered, and as it seemed to me grayer, either with dust and dirt or because its color had actually faded. His face was ghastly pale. His chin had a brown cut on it, a cut half healed. His expression was haggard and drawn as by intense suffering. So he does not look good. He, no. he doesn't even say anything. He motions for some wine and he sits down. They ask him what's going on. He says he's fine but he just needs a few minutes before he can talk. Herb says that he's going to go upstairs, change, wash up, and he's going to be back down and tell him the story. And the narrator notices as he leaves, he sort of has a limp. He's definitely been worked over, and he just wants to eat something, have a drink, catch his breath. And this is a lot like the professor from the chronic Argonauts. Right, yeah. That story was obviously a draft of this book. A lot of the time theory business is the same. Mm -hmm. Some of those sections seem very similar to what he, what he was expounding in the chronic Argonauts. Yeah. And I'll, I'll do some liberal quoting from John R. Hammond's uh, book, H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, a reference guide. Wells had considered the notion of time travel before in a short story titled The Chronic Argonauts. This work, published in his college newspaper, was the foundation for The Time Machine. Wells frequently stated that he had thought of using some of this material in a series of articles in the Pall Mall Gazette until the publisher asked him if he could instead write a serial novel on the same theme. Wells readily agreed and was paid £100 on its publication by Heinemann in 1895. That would be equal to about £10,000 today. Whoa! Which first published the story in serial form 
in the January to May numbers of the New Review. Henry Holt and company published the first book edition, probably prepared from a different manuscript, on the 7th of May in 1895. Heinemann published an English edition on the 29th of May. These two editions are different textually Mm -hmm. and are commonly referred to as the Holt text and Heinemann text, respectively. Nearly all modern reprints reproduce the Heinemann text. Maybe at some point we'll get into what those differences are. Yes, yes. As he's upstairs, they all speculate on what he's been up to, what's going on. They're trying to figure out if he's actually doing a bit or if something actually has happened to him. He comes in, he just wants some food. The editor goes story and he tells him, to hell with the story, I want to eat some meat. (laughs) And the narrator asks him if he has been time traveling and he says, yes. They all have a bunch of questions and get on him about how it doesn't make any sense and it's paradoxical in nature. And he just shuts them all down by saying, look, I'm not going to argue with any of you. I'll tell you my story and I want no interruptions. And they all agree. And now we're going to get what we didn't get in the Chronic Argonauts, which is an account of what actually happened. You know, real quick, speaking of pranks, have you seen that that time travel practical joke? No. Where it's uh, four sets of identical twins on a subway car in New York. No. And they pull a thing where they make the passengers think that they... (laughs) All right, I, I won't. I won't spoil it for you, but I'll put the link up in our show notes. It's a. Oh, it's a pretty. Whoa, I it's check a pretty that fun out. prank. Yeah. So chapter three, we get the account. Here's here's how it all went down. My time traveling expedition. So he says he finished up his work on his full scale machine and was going to give it a test run. Right. No cats. No chimps. No dogs. He's going to be the guy. Do it by himself. Test this with his own human body. Mm-hmm. No ant scientists. It's just him. <laughs> he tapped the forward lever just a bit, and he felt a falling sensation. But everything seemed to be the same. And then he noticed that the clock, which was just past 10 in the morning, was now 3.30 in the afternoon. Mm. So Herb pushed it again and saw his housekeeper come in, but she was moving at all heights at like super speed fast, like a Benny Hill. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think the time machine plays yakety sax constantly while it's being used. Yes, of course. And she didn't see him. She couldn't see him when he was there. So he's like, okay. And he said that moving through time did not feel good. This all reminded me a bit of Hodgson's house on the borderland. He used that effect, watching seasons change and the sun and moon fly around the earth as time moves That's forward right. faster and faster. Of course, that book was like 15 years later, but uh, yeah. but it really relied on that heavily. Yeah, he says uh, he felt a, a helpless headlong motion. And day and night would flicker past. The laboratory fell away. It must have been in disrepair. The day, night eventually settled on kind of one color. And they really did a good job of this in the 1960s movie. Yeah, I haven't seen that since I was little. I'm going to actually, this month while we're covering this, give it a give it a rewatch. But that that is the classic in terms of design. And, and you said it's pretty faithful to the book as well, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I really liked the 2002 Guy Pierce flick, actually. But I don't remember if it was faithful or not. But mm, yeah, no. I think they made like Jer- Jeremy Irons is like some master Morlock guy or something like that which is oh right yeah Jeremy Irons is not in this book so it's (laughs) so he says he sees trees growing and the landscape shifted like it was melting and flowing a year would go by in less than a minute and he could see the the ring of the sun as it moved through the sky because as you know the sun's position in the sky changes daily so he can just see it kind of moving back and forth Eventually, the unpleasant feelings went away and it was replaced by hysterical exhilaration. He started to think about what he was going to see and how was humanity going to progress. He saw amazing architecture rising above him. And then he thinks, uh, to come to a stop involved the jamming of myself molecule by molecule into whatever lay in my way. Meant bringing my atoms into such intimate contact with those of the obstacle that a profound chemical reaction, possibly a far-reaching explosion, would result and blow myself and my apparatus out of all possible dimensions into the unknown. This possibility had occurred to me again and again while I was making the machine, but I had cheerfully accepted it as an unavoidable risk, one of the risks man has to take. Now, the risk was inevitable. I no longer saw it 
in the same cheerful light. So he's like, oh, if I stop and there's an object where I am, yeah. it could be really bad. Not just like I get fused to an object, I could blow up everything. This thing needs to move in space as well as time. Right. He should have built it in a DeLorean. But I loved his explanation <laughs> that I had cheerfully accepted it as an unavoidable risk. Yeah. The risks man has got to take. And now that it's coming up, he goes, I never, I never saw it in the same cheerful light. And that's like a description of every panic attack ever, you know. When I decided to go to the party, I thought, hey, I'm a cool person. I could talk to strangers. But now that I have to go to the party, oh, man, this is not cool. <laughs> Him worrying about having to stop just stops right away. He doesn't even really think about it. I got to stop worrying about this and just do it. And so he does it. He stops it. And when he does it, he stops it so hard that he's actually flung through the air. And when he's flung through the air, he lands on the ground. It's a gray day. He's in a garden. There's lovely flowers. There's a thunderclap. And it starts to rain and hail. And then there's also this creepy statue that's there. It says, uh, I saw the white figure more distinctly. It was very large for a silver birch tree touched its shoulder. It was of a white marble in a shape something like that of a winged sphinx. But the wings, instead of being carried vertically at its sides, were spread so that it seemed to hover. A sphinx? Maybe this is an indication of some uh, religion or maybe some weird alien species or who knows. But it, it's familiar yet strange. He then begins to think, what might have happened to humanity? What if uh, there was some super advanced uh, civilization there and he would seem like a caveman to them? Mm -hmm. Or what if humanity reverted like there was some kind of dark age? He saw this huge building with this very strange design. The haze cleared and then he could see more. Herb set his time machine back up as he's you know ready to go, but he hurt his wrist and his knee when he got thrown out of it. As he's about ready to jump back on his machine, he gets a bit of courage and curiosity and decides to check out one of the buildings. And he sees that there's some people looking right at him and they're wearing rich, soft robes. Then I heard voices approaching me, coming through the bushes by the white sphinx with the heads and shoulders of men running. One of these emerged in a pathway leading straight to the little lawn upon which I stood with my machine. He was a slight creature, perhaps four feet high, clad in a purple tunic girdled at the waist with a leather belt. Sandals or buskins, I could not clearly distinguish which, were on his feet. His legs were bare to the knees, and his head was bare. Noticing that, I noticed for the first time how warm the air was. He struck me as being a very beautiful and graceful creature, but indescribably frail. His flushed face reminded me of the more beautiful kind of consumptive, that hectic beauty of which we used to hear so much. At the sight of him, I suddenly regained confidence. I took my hands from the machine. So he's about to, to meet the denizens of this future time he's wound up in. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're like little anime people. <laughs> uh, very strange race. But Wells had an interesting life. As I said, he had lots of interesting social and sexual uh attitudes and as we get into what this future society is uh -huh. that's when the novel changes a bit and those attitudes bloom that's where we're going to stop for today but i love this first quarter of the book that we covered because this quarter it's all potential you know it's all ideas yeah what can we do with this thing and this technology mm -hmm. and the middle of the section becomes this stranger in a strange land archetype it really is about social change some kind of dark facts about humanity yeah. And then near the end, it gets back to the time traveling in some really incredible ways. You know, it pauses and becomes a slightly different book for a while. And that's what we're going to get into next time. Yeah, I, I've got to say that, that this is so easy to read, as in, you know, a lot of the stories that we cover require some work mm. to get into. Even his last story, The Chronic Argonaut, was work to get into. 
But this one, it feels so modern. It, it just, just jumps right into it. It's happening right away. I really highly recommend, I don't do this often on the show, but I recommend everybody pick this up. It's free. It's public domain. You can find it if you've got a tablet or a Kindle, you can get downloads of it. But it's such a great book. It's such a great sci-fi book. And it's short. It's not very long. So if you're the kind of person that doesn't read too many books or even classic stuff, this one up. You will be so glad you did. I think it sucks. <laughs> Shut Fill me. Man, he's always arguing. Always arguing. Always so redheaded. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want to thank our reader, the inimitable Greg Johnson. Thank you, Greg, for reading. You can hear more of Greg in the amazing adventures of Quiet and Bold Consultants Paraordinary at quietandbold.com. We'll be back to cover more of the time machine next week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HP Podcast.